power. Even in Israel, where the Jews tried to run their part of the world the way it was, they were still under the thumb of Rome and they worked at the pleasure of the Roman rulers. And so Mark, his gospel is written, and and we'll notice as we go through, he doesn't go into a whole lot of Jewish heritage and Jewish history and Jewish theology the way Matthew sort of does. And Mark, in, in some of the old languages, he explains things in a certain way that it was very clear that it would have been a Roman person for whom his language was intended. How many of you write differently to your best friend than you would write to your grandmother? And if you use like maybe slightly different language, with your grandmother, it might be a pen and paper, and with your best friend, it's some kind of a device, right? Sometimes we speak a little bit differently, and we explain things differently compared to the audience. This is what we see with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's part of why Bible study is so much fun. And so Mark is writing to the Romans. He's writing to these Roman people who were ruled by Caesars. They were used to earthly authority. They didn't always like it, but they were used to power being presented. These Romans were people who were used to their kings being announced. And in the very first eight verses of Mark, as we read last week, who came before Jesus to announce him? John did, right? There's this John the Baptist who's crying, there is one who is coming who is greater than me. This is the kind of thing where a king would have been announced in the Roman days. Hear ye, hear ye, the king is coming. Mark is writing to the Romans who were used to being ruled by Caesars. They were used to being ruled by kings. John the Baptist prepared the way, and this is kind of one of those parallels. Mark says, see, this is a king, Jesus, who is coming. And Mark is writing to people who were used to all kinds of elaborate ceremonies announcing the coronation of a king or the transfer of royal authority. Keep that in the back of your mind as we continue through Mark chapter 1. And so John is out in the wilderness. John is baptizing people. John, we know, is the son of Elizabeth. John is a cousin of some kind, some kind of cousin of Jesus. Um, Doesn't necessarily know that John, doesn't mean that John knew Jesus. John grew up in the wilderness. Jesus grew up in Galilee. They may not have had a lot of contact with each other as they grow. Do any of you in this room have, I'm going to even just say first cousins, not second cousins, third cousins, fourth, none of this once removed stuff. Nobody knows what that means anyway. But do any of you have a first cousin that you know about, but you never met them? Anybody have first cousins that you've never met? One, a a couple. Any of you have first cousins that you haven't seen for a long time and you might not recognize them even if they walked in the door this morning? First cousins? Okay, so like half of you have at least a first cousin that you might not recognize if they walked in today. All right. This John who is announcing Jesus is is a cousin. They're they're related in some way. But Jesus now in verse 9 of Mark chapter 1, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. It's where Jesus, kind of his area where he'd been living. And he was baptized by John in the Jordan. We know from reading the other gospels that Jesus was about 30 years old at this time. Okay, And this baptism thing that's happening, John's doing it out in the wilderness. It's where he always lived. It says in the first couple of verses he wore a shirt of camel hair. Doesn't sound very nice to me, but that's what he wore. He wore a leather belt or a girdle of some kind that sort of held him together. And so he is out in the wilderness, and at this time, many of the Jews are going out to him. It says all of the Jewish countryside was going out to be baptized by John with a baptism of repentance. John was calling people saying, turn away from all of your human garbage, all of your sin, and turn toward the Lord. Okay, that was the message, very basic. And people were responding to this. There was something about John that drew people out to the wilderness to be baptized. Something I found very interesting, a comment that another pastor made 
at a pastor's meeting some years ago. We were talking around the table about someone who was in the news who seemed to be a dingbat, but had a huge amount of followers. Do you know people like this? I mean, maybe you don't know them very well, but you know characters like that, right? People who seem to have no good message, nothing to offer, and yet people just flock to them. We were talking about this thing, and, and then we got talking about it in the context of how is it that there are some pastors or Christian or religious leaders who are so influential and so powerful, and so many people follow them, either go to their church or read their books or go to their conferences, and then we find out that that person was living in sin with some kind of heinous behavior for years. How does this happen, right? We were asking these questions around the table. And then one of my friends who, who uh, I've learned to just kind of remember the things that he said, he said this. He said, if you ever observe a person who seems to have an outsized influence, they are either being empowered by the Holy Spirit or by a demon. Now, you can do some theological study and think and argue about whether that is true, but it stuck with me and it rang as true. If you ever see a person who seems to have influence just beyond what they ought to, boy, that, that person's very normal. That person's very average. What, that person, the message that they're speaking, Billy Graham was one of those people that many people pointed out over the years. Billy Graham was a fine preacher. Don't get me wrong, but he was not according to his peers of the day, or even according to many standards of 2022. He was not a fantastic preacher. He was not someone who just over and over and over had these fantastic stories that drew people in. Billy Graham preached the truth, and he was anointed by God. And, and this fellow, this pastor who was sitting around the table said, that was a sign that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit because he had an outsized influence. He had more influence than a fellow from the mountains of North Carolina ought to seem to have. And then you go on the dark side, and how many names would I have to name? But think about people who you look at them and say, why does anyone follow them? Well, this pastor was suggesting that there was a power behind the person that was more than just personality. There's something going on here with John because John is out in the wilderness. There's nothing about him really that would have been that amazing to the people from towns, people who were followed up with the latest styles and being cosmopolitan and very sophisticated. They're going out to be baptized in a river by this guy who's eating locusts and wild honey and wearing not the latest fashions. Something is going on there. Well, we know, we know that it was the Holy Spirit. Look how this story continues. Mark 1 verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth, was baptized by John in the Jordan River. It says in verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, I know we touched on this last week, but hang in here with me. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him, that is Jesus, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, said, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is a fun couple of verses. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he had just been baptized by John. He didn't need to be baptized. He didn't need to be cleansed of his sin. He had no sin. Jesus was a perfect human. And so 
There were many going out to John because they could sense that there was something about him and they knew that they were filthy. They knew that they had a history, just like so many of us had. We knew when we came to the Lord that first time that we were really conscious of it, we knew, God, I don't deserve to be in your presence, but if you will forgive me, I will follow you with all that I've got. And God did that. He forgives us and we've been set free. There were these people walking out to John, going, flocking out to John, and he was baptizing them for this repentance and they were turning away from their old life and there was some buzz about it all because the Holy Spirit was behind it. And now Jesus came down to the water, not needing to be baptized, but willing to be baptized. And as he was coming up out of the water, heaven was torn open, Mark says, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. The voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you, I'm well pleased. Here's a couple things that we can learn from these verses. First of all, Jesus Christ related to the people that he was trying to minister toward. Jesus did not need to be baptized for repentance. Jesus could have come down and stood beside John and said, you know, John, you're doing a great job here. Way to go, cuz. Because all these filthy folks really need to get their life in order. I myself am perfect. You don't need to dunk me. Thank you. I combed my hair this morning. Right? He could have had that conversation and just kind of presided over things. But one of the things that we can learn from this verse is that Jesus did some things that he didn't even need to do so that he could share the things that people needed to hear. Do you know people? I hope you know leaders. I hope there are people in your life who you've seen them and said, look, I can relate to that person. I hope there are people like that in your life. Not just that you have to follow because you're stuck or you'd better listen or else you'll be punished, but I want to listen because that person relates to me. I can connect to them. This is what Jesus was doing here. One of the things happening with this baptism is that Jesus is relating to people. He is connecting with people. And that's important because Jesus is bringing a message that is so deep and so crucial. God wants everyone to know who Jesus is. And Jesus is going to be a preacher. That's one of the first tasks that he has in his ministry as this unfolds. He goes and he reprints and says, or I'm sorry, he preaches a message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus relates to his audience because he has a message that is important. We talked through the months of November and December as we studied through the book of Revelation. We talked about how God is inviting people constantly to become close to him. It's going to happen in the future, all the way until the end of time here on earth. God is going to be telling people, repent, turn away from your sins, come to me. Here, 2,000 years ago, Jesus is getting ready to bring this message. John is bringing this message, turn away from your sin, turn away from your earthly life, turn toward the Lord and the kingdom of heaven. God wants everybody to know who he is, and God wants everybody to know who Jesus is. I got a text a few weeks ago. I got a kick out of this. I don't think I'm going to share the name. But I got a text a few weeks ago from one of you talking about the New Jerusalem. How many of you remember we talked about the New Jerusalem and how big it was and the size of the city? And and this is a picture of the new heaven and the new earth and, and this New Jerusalem coming down. It's in the last last few chapters of Revelation, you can read more details about it. There's a person in this room who really enjoys getting a little deeper into the numbers, and this is what they told me. The book of Revelation tells us that this new Jerusalem is about 1,400 miles wide and deep and tall. So we talked about this this thing that's a, a certain percentage of the moon. Do you remember I kind of speculated on some of that? We talked about this new city, how large it was for, for God's plan for, for humanity in, in the future. 
Well, this person did some math. He said, if you take 1,400 cubic miles, that's the size of this city, 1,400 long, 1,400 deep, 1,400 miles tall. If you take that, the volume, maybe I'm too much of a nerd. Forgive me. You know, count the ceiling tiles if, if I'm going to miss you here for 20 seconds. The volume of 1,400 by 1,400 by 1,400 miles is 404 billion billion cubic feet. How much is a cubic foot? Eh, a little bit bigger than a basketball. 404 billion billion of those. That's how big that city is that God talks about in Revelation where people are going to go and they're going to relate to God. He will be their God. They will be their people. No more tears, streets of gold, yada, yada, yada. Yes, I just yada, yada, the new Jerusalem. 404 billion, billion cubic feet. And, and then this is where it got really interesting from my quant nerd. They said, you could fit, you could fit 12 million billion, 12 million billion, I guess that's 15 zeros. You could fit 12 million billion 3,600 square foot homes with 10 foot ceilings. And if you have a 3,600 square foot home with 10 foot ceilings, eh, a couple of you do. You're not raising your hand to admit it. It's a nice place. You might call it a mansion. You can fit 12 million billion of those homes into that new Jerusalem that God is preparing for all of humanity. And then... My brilliant friend said that about 120 billion people have lived on the earth in total if you just kind of extrapolate. Smart people extrapolate. I don't know how to do that. But this person said that, hey, let's figure 120 billion people lived on the earth. There's 7 billion people living here today, right now. About 120 billion people have lived on the earth in total. So, so even if every person of history dies, or rather is saved, and then dies, and then is promoted to heaven, the city that God's preparing, even if everybody who ever lived goes to heaven, the city that's God, that God's preparing is large enough so that each of those 120 billion people could own 93,000 of those 3,600 square foot homes. So 120 billion people have lived if all of them go to heaven, there's enough space there. God has created enough room so that all of them can have 93,000 mansions. That was the math that one of your brothers did for you. And to him, I say thank you. What is the point of all of these mental gymnastics? Here is the point. God is preparing quite a place with plenty of space. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. Why do you prepare a big house like that? Is there much sadder than an empty, big house? Why does God prepare a place like that? Because he wants people to come home. Because he wants people to believe in Jesus, find faith in him, and have new life. This is why this place is being prepared where there's enough space if we live mansion to mansion for 93,000 homes per person. That's pretty cool, I think. And Jesus here at the beginning of his ministry comes down to the river and says, John, 
baptize me. We know from the other gospels, John says, oh, I, I don't need to be baptizing you. You should baptize me. Jesus says, no, this is the way it needs to be done. This is how we fulfill all the prophecies. This is how we get the message out. So John baptizes Jesus. Jesus gives this example, connects with the people, and now he starts to preach this message about repenting for the kingdom of heaven is near. Why does he preach that message? Because he wants people to repent, because he wants them to understand that they can live out the kingdom of heaven on earth, but they can live in the kingdom of heaven in eternity and there's plenty of space. Jesus says, come on, y'all come. Let's go. Let's go. This message matters because God loves people and he wants us to come to him. He's got plenty of space for us. I've heard people be concerned before that, well, you know, our world's getting pretty crowded right now. There's a lot of folks here and I enjoy my space. That's why I moved to Chester County from Delaware County so that I could have my space here. (laughs) There's plenty of space. God just says, look, I want you all to come home. And this is why he sent Jesus. He said, Jesus, he said to Jesus, he said, you need to tell these people who I am. He said to Jesus, these people are not getting to me on their own. They're not able to do it. Go help them because God loves us. God cares about us. God cares about all people. Now people have choice. We can reject him and turn away. We can say, no, thanks. I'd rather not have 93,000, 3,600 square foot houses. Thanks, God. I'll live here doing what I want now. I'll be the king of a castle this big instead of this big. It's because people are stupid. It's because people are stupid that this happens. We have our desires, right? What does the scripture say? We all like sheep have gone astray. We just follow our desires. I'm hungry, so I go eat. I want it, so I go get. God says, I've got got mansions upon mansions for you that you can't even imagine. Jesus, tell them about it. So Jesus comes to earth, baptized by John, kind of a commissioning for this ministry that he's going to have. And just as Jesus is coming up out of the water, this is, this is recounted in all four of the Gospels. So I guess we better pay attention. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, someone last week, I I love talking with you guys after the sermon and hearing your questions. Someone asked me last week, well, did did everybody see that? I mean, Mark wrote about it. And we learned last week that Mark got his source information from Peter. Peter was the disciple of Jesus who was close by. Peter who is not quite on the scene yet when this is happening, but Peter who knew Jesus as well as just about any other human did. Mark was not an eyewitness to all of the things of Jesus, but Peter was, and so Mark wrote all of Peter's information, wrote down Peter's stories. Someone asked me last week, well, we know that Jesus was coming up out of the water and he saw heaven being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Was that something that like everybody saw? Did the whole crowd see that? Did John see that? Or was this just something that was for Jesus? Well, I don't know about everything, but here's what another part of the Bible says. In the book of John, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John says that on the very next day after Jesus was baptized, after Jesus came up out of the water, after heaven was torn open, the Spirit came down like a dove, John says this, John the Baptist, different John, John's writing about John, John the Baptist gave a testimony and said, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him. John talking about Jesus. I didn't didn't realize who he was. I didn't know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, 
The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. A little bit of history there for you. Isn't that fun? Did everybody see it? I don't know. Did the whole crowd see it? I don't know. Did more people realize it than Jesus? Yes. Peter wrote about it. John, the very next day, eyewitness says, yesterday I saw this happen. The Spirit came down. God has a message that he wants to share with the people. He sends Jesus to do it. Jesus lives his life the first 30 years mostly in obscurity. We know a few things, but we don't know everything. And at the beginning of his three-year ministry that came on the heels of that first 30 years of living, in that beginning of that three years of ministry, Jesus came down to where John was baptizing all the people, and there were crowds all around. Jesus said, it's good for you to baptize me. John said, fine, I'll baptize you. And all the people saw Jesus being baptized, and it sounds like at least some of the people saw the Spirit come down on Jesus like a dove and remain on him. So there are some fun lessons there, aren't there? Mark is writing to people who are familiar with kings. Mark is writing to Romans who are used to ceremonies and coronations. And Mark tells people in the very beginning of his gospel, look, this Jesus who is indeed the king of all things, he was heralded by John the Baptist and he was anointed by the Lord. The Holy Spirit came down from heaven and landed on him like a dove. People, what else do you need for your king? This is what Mark is writing, and this is what people were reading. That's good stuff, but there are even a few more lessons for us if we reach into the Bible and see what we find. Just a couple of little things that you might be able to practice in your life. First of all, God the Father was public. This isn't first of all, it is like ninth of all. Okay, God the Father was public with his affection for his son. Fathers, mothers too, but I'm going to call out us fathers. Are you showing love for your children the way God showed love for his? Now, we can, we can look at God's love for us and say, well, God is preparing a home for us. In fact, God might be preparing 93,000 homes for some of us. And we might say, I am preparing. In fact, I have prepared a home for my child. I am providing. I am doing what I need to do as a father. That, that might be a lesson that you can get here. But God the Father does not just speak to his children or about his children with provision. Here with Jesus Christ, God says, this is my son. And in a way that at least more than Jesus could hear, he said, I love him and I'm proud of him. Let me just tell you, fathers and mothers, but especially fathers. If you are a father, there is someone in your life who even if they've heard it a million times, they are hungry for you to tell them that you love them and that you are proud of them and not just at home. Sometimes, even when there's a whole crowd of people on the riverbank, Fathers, I think all of us can be challenged with that example, can't we? Because I know there are some of us in this room right now, men and women, who never heard that kind of love from their father. Some of us, some of us have been abused or mistreated by our father, but there are a lot in this room who were never even mistreated, but just met with silence. 
There are a lot of us in this room that would give a lot just to have heard our dad say, I love you and I'm proud of you. And to have our friends hear him say it, even if we're embarrassed in the moment. If you're still sitting here today, and if you've got a child in your home, maybe there's something you can learn from Mark chapter 1. Fathers, you don't get to say, well, that's just not me. And fathers, I have compassion for you, but it's not an excuse to say, well, I never heard that from my dad. Okay, be better than your dad. Tell your children. Tell your grandchildren. Tell any children in your care, I love you. I'm proud of you. And then just like God did for Jesus, do whatever you can to empower them to work out their mission. God sent the Holy Spirit down to Jesus. He didn't just say, Jesus, I love you, and I'm proud of you. Now, go make me proud. It's not what God did. God said, here is a helper, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, landing on you that will help you to do all the things that you need to do. Fathers, mothers, is this the way you're living? You can. You still can. So do it. Do it. Jesus Something about Jesus needed this coronation, needed this baptism. Some, something happening had to be done or else it wouldn't have been done. And so if, if Jesus needed this encouragement, I would suggest that we do too. If you are a person who can give encouragement, if you are a person who can show affection, show it. Show it. Be generous with your love and your, infection, uh, your, love and your affection and then your encouragement and empowerment to go and be who God called people to be. We have so much opportunity to show love. And it pays such dividends when kids and people know they are loved. I think a lot of you are doing a pretty good job. But some of us are not. So let's do better, okay? This is one of the examples that we can pull out of Mark chapter 1. Then I'm going to kind of drag one more example out here. This may be the obvious one. This may be the churchy one, but it's an important one. There's a baptism that happens here that is recorded in all four Gospels. And this baptism, this baptism of Jesus is, is a key event in forming the theology that we practice here at Waterway Church. As I said, we've got a membership class happening across the hallway during the Sunday school hour. If you, if you haven't been there yet and you're, you're thinking, hey, I'd like to maybe get more involved in this church, join us next week. Okay, we'll catch you up. We'll catch you up. But this baptism is recorded in all four Gospels. It's an event that's key in forming our theology. And in our membership class last week and this week, we talked about how in 1517, so just over 500 years ago, in Germany, the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation began. This is when Martin Luther put his 95 theses on the door of the cathedral, and he said, he said church, and at that time, if you were living in Germany or in Western Europe and you talked about the church, there was only one church. It was the Catholic Church that was based in Rome. Martin Luther put these, put these ideas up on the door for ways that he wanted to reform the church because he was reading the Bible and said, wait, our church isn't acting the way the Bible says we ought to act. And so he had these 95 ideas that went up on the door. 
And 15 years after that, people followed his example and said, well, let's read the Bible and see if we are living out the way the Bible calls us to live out. And, and so all aspects of church and all aspects of civic life and all aspects of personal life were now being examined in a way they hadn't before because until about, until about the year 1500 or a little bit earlier, most people didn't have a Bible they could read. A guy named Gutenberg invented the printing press in the mid-1400s, and then he started to be able to print the Bible so that they could have it mass-produced in languages that people could understand. Up until the 1500s, the Bible was only a relic that was stored in the cathedral. It was written in a language that, generally speaking, only the priests could read. And so if you wanted to hear the Bible, you just had to go and listen. And if that priest didn't do it right, didn't say it right, or had some agenda, you had no way to check. Starting in the 1500s, people began to be able to read the Bible because there was a printing press, and there were printing presses that were printing the most popular book in the world, then and now, the Bible. And they were printing the Bible in the language that the people could read. Martin Luther read it and said, we've got to straighten up. And so many after him said the same thing. We come from a particular branch of the Protestant Reformation. We come from among the radical reformers. And if you'd like to learn more about the ways that these particular weirdos were weird, come to our membership class and we will tell you why we still subscribe to that particular brand of weird. But one of the things that popped up 500 years ago among folks who today are called Mennonites and Brethren and Anabaptists is this idea that, look, Jesus was baptized as an adult. Jesus walked down into the water by his own volition, by his own choice. Jesus made a decision, went to the water, was baptized, and then he was headed out into public ministry. 500 years ago, Menno Simons and many others said, we ought to do it like that as well. And so that is why, among other reasons, but especially because of this scripture, that we baptize people who are old enough to say, I want to be baptized. Some of you remember, just a month or two ago, we did some baby dedications up here. We dedicated children to the Lord, but we didn't baptize them. Other churches do baptize children. That's their prerogative. They do what they do. But we do what we do because of what it says here. Jesus, as an adult, was baptized. Membership class is working towards that. We've got a class happening for our junior high and senior high kids right now that if they're not baptized yet, this is the kind of basic teaching that they ought to stand so they can put their life in the hands of Jesus Christ. They can put their faith in him and then respond to that calling with baptism. This event here in Mark chapter one, in John chapter one, recorded in Matthew, recorded in Luke, this event forms so much of what we are. And the apostle Paul reflected back on it in Romans chapter six. Paul writing again to the Romans. So many Romans needed so much information and encouragement. Paul said, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. We want new life in Christ. God wants us to have new life in Christ. That's why he's preparing all those mansions. God wants us to be close to him. One of the things that we're told to do is, okay, participate in baptism. And we say, how do we do that? Well, let's try to do it the way Jesus did it. Fun fact, in John chapter four, John says that Jesus' disciples, even after Jesus was baptized, Jesus' disciples baptized people as well says Jesus himself didn't do the baptizing, but his disciples did. In fact, there was a little skirmish. Jesus' disciples were like, well, we're baptizing more than John's disciples, but they're still out there. Who's, which team's winning? Jesus said, 
God's team's winning. There's no teams here. That's a really loose paraphrase. But Jesus saw value in people in people deciding to leave their lives of sin behind and cast their lot with the Lord. I'm out of time. But before you go, I want to remind you of the next two verses because these are going to be important for you to think about. And, and fathers, as you are driving out the driveway and telling your children how much you love them and telling them how much you're proud of them, let part two of your conversation be this. Even though God loved Jesus and empowered Jesus, even though Jesus was perfect and he was on a mission, life was not easy for Jesus. And here is verse 12. After this baptism, after the Holy Spirit came down, Mark says that at once, lots of action in Mark, at once, immediately, right away, and then, that's Mark. At once, the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Other Gospels say a little bit more about that. They talk about the temptation of Christ. They talk about what what Satan said, what Jesus said, and exactly how it all unfolded. Mark simply tells us that even though Jesus was commissioned, even though he was called, even though he was loved, even though God was proud of him, even though he could have risen above, even though Jesus could have said, angels, wipe out all the bad guys. Jesus' life included suffering. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted. Other parts of Scripture tell us that he was fasting. He did not eat. And the wilderness here is a legitimate wilderness with legitimate wild animals. Being a Christian does not mean that life is going to be fun or comfortable or easy. Many of us in this room are fat and happy. God bless us. Thank the Lord. That's not promised. Many of us are free We enjoy liberties that people around the world do not enjoy. Praise God and thank God for that, but it's not promised. Many of us are comfortable. We have choices. We have money. And we can influence our lives profoundly. That is an incredible blessing from God. We must be thankful, but it is not promised. The example of Jesus is, even though he was fully focused on the Lord, fully commissioned and called, he still spent time in the wilderness. He still endured suffering. He still was subject to being tempted. He never gave in. Sometimes our lives are that way too. Just because you feel pain doesn't mean God is against you. It does not necessarily mean that you've stepped outside of the will of God. And it doesn't mean that you are in the wrong place. Sometimes you just feel pain because that's part of the walk that God has for you. Jesus went through it too. Remember, God loves you so much that just as the scripture says, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. But God loves you so much that he is preparing a big, huge city with lots and lots of houses and lots and lots of rooms. And there's space for everybody. And God is just trying to fill it up, saying, people, come to me. That's the message that we bring today from Mark chapter 1. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for blessing us, Lord, so much. We in this room, even the least blessed is richly blessed. So thank you, Lord. 
Thank you, God, for the promise that there is space for us in your eternal kingdom. Thank you, God, for the promise that there is a path for us to receive your eternal kingdom through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the example of Jesus Christ and recording it all in Scripture. And thank you, Lord, that we have time still today to repent of our sins, to turn toward you, to give our lives to you in Jesus Christ, and to live with new hope that can help us to endure even the deepest pain. So God, thank you. And Lord, would you please, would you please send your Holy Spirit now to be upon us, just as you did with Jesus? Lord, would you please empower us to be greater than what we are now? And Lord, would you please help us to go out into this world and tell people the most important news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, this is our prayer. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.